Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Okay, guys, huddle up. One more drive down the field in our little college, Wesleyan University, will beat Oklahoma, but their defense is really digging in. In his history of sexuality, Foucault says, where there is power, there is resistance. Really, Carl? What did I say about quoting Foucault in the huddle? All right, now we're going to run that little eight-yard slant. Jürgen Habermas says that Foucault critiques normativity as socially constructed and contingent, covertly relying on the very enlightenment principles he attempts to argue against. Habermas is a wanker. Seriously, dude? You're calling the author of Between Facts and Norms Contributions to a Discourse Theory of Law and Democracy a wanker? I think the point is Habermas accuses postmodernism of a totalizing perspective that fails to differentiate phenomena and practices that occur within a modern society. Everybody, shut up! I'm the QB. What I say goes. We're going to run an eight-yard slant with the tight end blocking on the blitz. And for the purposes of this play, rationality is located in structures of interpersonal linguistic communication rather than in the structure of the cosmos. That's weak social theory. Shut up, Jason. Meanwhile, here's a show about the first year of Trump, Wesleyan football, and the year in words. And now the starting place kicker for the Brookings Institute, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, Brookings just added a uh, Division Three football program, too, even though they're not even a college, but just you know, just to have one. Uh, yeah, we'll be talking about all of that in the second segment today. It, it is true that Wesleyan, although they never got rid of their football uh, program, they have beefed up their football program so that they have something that, I guess, donors can get excited about, etc. Anyway, we'll tell you all about that in the second segment. Final second segment will be about the uh, yearly debate about what the word of the year is. Of course, Peter Sokolowski is our go-to guy about that. Uh, lexicographer for Merriam-Webster. He'll be joining us. Uh, right now, though, we're going to talk about what one of the most discussed pieces uh, of the weekend, one of the must-reads of the weekend. It's uh, Peter Baker's piece uh, on the first year or so uh, of Trump. Uh, he is the chief White House correspondent for The New York Times and an analyst for MSNBC. Peter Baker, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, um, the piece asks several really penetrating questions, and actually maybe I'll start at the end of the piece and kind of work backwards from there. One of the questions is, obviously there have been dramatic changes in the conduct of the president as compared to other presidents, and we can talk about what those are, but the $64 million question is, when Donald Trump is no longer president, how many of these things, the combativeness, the constant calling out uh, of, uh, you know, of various opponents, both domestically and around the world, the ignoring uh, of, of standard processes, the, the lack of staffing, how much of that stuff is, uh, is, is going to be carried over? I mean, that's one of the questions you asked. Depending on who you talk to, you got different answers. Well, that's right. Exactly. It's a good question. There are some people who think that once you've let the genie out of the bottle on some of this stuff, it's very hard to put it back in. You know, when, once the President Obama and John McCain stopped taking uh, uh, federal campaign money, to, you know, public money to f- finance their campaigns, which used to be thought to be a red line that candidates wouldn't cross uh, after Watergate, they discovered they did, and nobody's ever gone back. So what are the, what are the things that President Trump has done that might uh, be, you know, replicated by future presidents? Would they, would the next president, for instance, feel as compelled to release his or her tax returns, for instance? Would, would there seem to be as many limits on the kind of business a, a, a president might keep on 
the side. Would the kind of communication strategy, as you point out through Twitter, uh, be as robust, be as uh, raw, be as combative with the next president? And and that's the real question. You know, there are some people who say, you know, once you've started these kind of things, that that, that the next president tends to uh, adopt some of them. At least uh, there are others who say, no, President Trump is so unique, so sui generis that the, the next president will feel some uh, incentive to go the opposite direction to prove that he or she is not President Trump. Although one of the uh, points that's made in your piece, and, and I think it's the right one, is so much of this depends on how Trump finishes. In other words, if he finishes as Nixon, he's less likely to be a model. The next president from either party is going to look at that and say, OK, how do I avoid um, beaching my boat on those rocks? Exactly right. Exactly right. If he becomes a super successful president, if the economy is going strong when he leaves office, if he, if the Russia probe doesn't end up uh, leading anywhere significant uh, in terms of his own involvement or his family's or close aides, uh, then yeah, this could be, a, you know, it might be viewed as a model by at least some uh, politicians. But I, I think at the moment, it's not. I mean, at the moment, he's low in the polls. Most politicians wouldn't aspire to be a president with only 30-some percent support uh, among the people. Most, most politicians wouldn't aspire to be a president who is as polarizing as this president is. So, you know, at the moment anyway, I think a lot of, certainly Democrats and a lot of Republicans even might look at this and say, this is not an example we want to follow. You know, my biggest takeaway from your piece was, uh, you know, as you note, uh, he's often described or describes himself as the presidency of one. Last uh, in This past November, he said, I'm the only one who matters uh, when he's ta- telling the press why the State Department positions remain empty. Ron Klain, a uh, longtime Democratic operative under Clinton and Obama, says it's a presidency of one person. And, and I find myself thinking of the words attributed to Louis XIV, probably apocryphally, you know, the state, it's me, I'm the state. Um, And, you know, there seems to be a lot in your piece, even that use of absolute, I have the absolute right to do what I want to do with the Justice Department, that it seems like I'm listening to 17th century monarchs talk about, you know, how, how much they can extend their power. That was the last time there was any real serious debate in Western Europe about whether or not a leader should have absolute power. Well, he gives that impression, right? Uh, he gives the impression of fascination with a certain autocratic version of governance. Uh, he is he's fond of Vladimir Putin and uh, Erdogan and Turkey and Sisi and Egypt and Duterte and the Philippines, all these sort of strongmen leaders, people we would not consider to be model Democrats. And he says things like he did last week where he says he has the absolute right to tell the Justice Department to start or stop investigations uh, of a political nature, uh, things that no other president would say. And and it does stir a lot of concern among people. Is this an authoritarian uh, direction that we're heading? Having said that, there's a lot of bark there and sometimes not as much bite. He, he says a lot of stuff. And hasn't necessarily followed through on it. And the question is whether he will. So this morning, for instance, he tweets out that Hillary Clinton's top aide, Huma Baden, should be put in jail. That's something, again, no president would weigh in on uh, prior to this one. Uh, on the other hand, you know, he, he seems to mostly keep to Twitter when it comes to these things, as opposed to actually genuinely ordering the Justice Department to follow through on it. Now, he that may be taken as a direction by somebody in the Justice Department. We don't know where this is going to go. But at the moment, uh, you know, there's still, uh, I think the jury is still out. You know, let's, I want to just go back to that tweet, because I, I, there's two tweets from this morning, which I think point up something that he does 
that I've never seen a president do. And so, yes, that tweet – and you you almost have to retrain yourselves to read these things. So they're not written in conventional syntax. So it says, crooked Hillary Clinton's top aide, Huma Abedin, has been accused of disregarding basic security protocols. She put classified passwords into the hands of foreign agents. Remember sailors' pictures on submarine. Jail! Exclamation point. Deep State Justice Department must finally act. Question mark. Also on Comey, ampersand, others. And and so his other major tweet this morning was about Iran, Iran but at, uh, he made it, uh, he talked about the terrible deal made with them by the Obama administration. You know, Peter, we've seen pre- presidents typically, at least in a very anodyne fashion, give some kind of lip service to the idea of healing the wounds of the election, binding up the wounds, bringing the country together after the election. I've never seen a president so determined to, to stigmatize people who no longer pose a threat to him. I mean, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama are mentioned, I feel like, almost on a daily basis by this guy in his tweets. Well, it's it, it, like two things. One, he likes to have a foil to play off of, right? He likes to have an enemy. He likes to have an uh, opponent. He likes to have somebody to play off of. And, 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 and for the last couple of years, that's been Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. Uh, you're right. He's not a unifier. He is a divider. That's the nature of his politics. And other presidents, at least, as you say, give lip service to the idea that they are supposed to be a national leader, not a leader just of a faction or a political uh, movement. But um, that's not the way he operates. He, and, he, and he gets a charge, and it's, it, it energizes his base to, to engage in this kind of more combative version of politics. The other reason, by the way, I would say that he continues to target Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama is because there isn't any other enemy out there for him to target among the Democrats. They're not particularly strong yet. A year after the election, they're still uh, relatively leaderless, and there's not uh, sort of somebody for him to kind of take after that will, that will in fact, stimulate a lot of uh, support from his base because there aren't very many well-known Democrats uh, uh, who stepped into the void of leadership right now. So uh, sort of on the plus side of the ledger in your article, and this is also something that I hadn't really framed in my mind this way. So those of us who've covered politicians, we know that politicians are usually wearing masks. You know, and I had a friend who worked in the Clinton administration. He said he just had never seen uh, two people better at just confusing you about when they did or didn't have their masks on than, than Bill and Hillary Clinton. It was very complicated. But most of the time, politicians don't really want you to know who they are. And they're very rarely genuine. Trump's kind of argument is what you see is what you get, right? A number of the people in your article said, you know what? He's not trying to fool anybody. He's just, he's letting it all hang out. Exactly. I mean, the idea of a presidency traditionally has been one of a certain magisterial distance from the people. We actually give it a certain royal quality, even though we don't believe in monarchy here, in which we assign the president the the role of, you know, paterfamilias, you know, the father of the country, maybe eventually the mother of the country who is above us and and, and better than us in some ways. Um, And that's just not the way he uh, he's trying to present himself. He's not trying to present himself as being above uh, above it all. He's in fact right there in the midst of it. He wants to be a, a fighter and a and a and a and a you know in a, in a kind of a wrestling kind of way that that might appeal to people who feel that the system has been broken and has been abused by those people who were not fully transparent with us. Now, you know, having said that, he said a lot of things that obviously aren't true. We we, we documented those repeatedly. 
but in but in its own way, it feels authentic to at least some people. That it feels like he is just telling us what he really thinks. He tells us what uh, he really means, and he's not hiding behind some artificial script or, or talking points. You know that 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 whole thing about sort of saying things that aren't true. To me, that's in many ways the real big question about what happens after Donald Trump is president emeritus is, I mean, the Washington Post, I saw you retweeted the same thing. Uh, they do it. They're, they're doing a compilation. They say with just 18 days before President Trump completes his first year, he's now on track to exceed 2,000 false or misleading claims, according to their uh, database. Now, a lot of those claims are repetitions of the same canard that he, he says over and over again about, about various things. But to me, that's the thing that might be the hardest to repair or even understand whether we're repairing, right? The, the notion that you're held to some kind of empirical standard, that there should be some kind of punishment if you don't tell the truth. Well, I think that's right. Look, every president, every politician is not fully honest with us all the time. You could say every politician lies to us, and that's probably true. But I remember, you know, I've covered three other presidents, and, and the ones I've covered have made a real point of trying to avoid saying things that are sort of brazenly and easily demonstrably proven to be untrue. Uh, at the very least, try to shade things or, or couch things or qualify things in ways so that at least might be true or at least is arguably true. They very rarely say things that are just, you know, by an objective, factual standard, not the case. And, and, and they don't do it because they're afraid of the consequences. They're afraid that they will be called to account. They're afraid that uh, they will look bad in the public and that will cost them support. Here we have a situation where a president has been called to account repeatedly after saying things that are not true, things that he must know are not true, um, things that are, in fact, in some cases, far-fetched, uh, you know, scenarios. And there, you know, he doesn't seem to uh, to feel any, you know, compunction about that. He doesn't seem to worry that he will be uh, penalized politically for doing so. Although you can certainly argue that the low approval ratings are, in fact, partly a consequence of somebody who is uh, is not uh, uh, telling the truth all the time. You know, um, I was watching this uh, documentary on MS. I think it was on MSNBC last night about uh, Watergate, which I'm re-obsessed by. And and there was some talk about the imperial pres- presidency, the notion that every president since World War II has expanded the powers of the office. And at one point, Rachel Maddow was on screen saying that you know Obama really kind of campaigned in 2008 on the notion that that George W. Bush had uh, or Dick Cheney or somebody had stocked the presidency with way too much more power. And then she noted, but Obama never gave any power. Or back uh, and and it seems to me that's a bipartisan thing, right? Exactly. Yeah, right. Something exactly. that Republicans and Democrats have agreed on for the years. Yeah, the presidency's, but I mean, it seems to me that Trump's doing a kind of a different thing, which is because. Uh, you know, he's got this 37.5 approval rating or whatever it is right now. It's a historically low approval rating. And it doesn't seem to matter. It's like he's more intent on exploring how much power there is in the office. He doesn't almost it's almost like he's thinking to himself, I don't necessarily need to bring the people along with me in huge droves as long as I have this this, you know, smallish base. And I'll just figure out what presidents can do. Uh, maybe they can do even more things. Yeah, I don't think he really, I mean, he certainly didn't arrive in office knowing what presidents can do and what they can't do. You know, he, let's, let's remember, this is the 45th president, but it's the first one who came to office without having any experience whatsoever in government or the military. And he's literally been learning on the job this year. And one of the things he's learned on the job is that president's not supposed to use the FBI 
or the Justice Department to pursue political uh, aims of his own, to go after his political opponents. That seems to frustrate him. He's openly said so. Um, and he has been frustrated to learn that Congress has such a role in making decisions about things, and, and that has also frustrated him at times. So, um, you know, this has been an on-the-job uh, learning experience for him in terms of where power resides and where it doesn't. He's tried to expand it just as Obama did through executive actions. Uh, by you know using the, the the power of the presidency to its fullest extent, that is a bipartisan trend over the years. Um, but he's also been called back on that by the courts, just as uh, uh, President Obama has been at times or was at times. So, you know, um, I, I think his um, you know his conception of power uh, of the office was different than what he has discovered, and he is still trying to uh, find his way there. Um, so we're talking to Peter Baker right now. You've got to read his incredibly comprehensive piece, if you haven't already, in the New York Times this weekend about uh, uh, Trump after almost a year now. Um, so a couple of other things. One of the things, I keep going back to the um, Republican primaries and the debates, and, and I think it was there that he started talking about one of his virtues was unpredictability. And as a foreign policy negotiator, as he put it, you know that he would be more effective than most people because his adversaries wouldn't know from moment to moment what he might do. He's that unpredictable. And and in a way, I think he's kind of delivered on that, pro, uh, on that proposal. And, and it's true domestically, too, that I think McConnell and Ryan, you know, can walk into a meeting and suddenly find uh, Trump beaming very favorably at Schumer and, uh, uh, and Pelosi. You know, I mean, he actually surprises his own party in Congress sometimes with that level of unpredictability. Well, that's exactly right. I think the one predictable thing about this uh, uh, presidency has been its unpredictability. Every day you wake up and you have no idea what's going to be the topic of the day because he's going to uh, head off in some completely different direction. Who knew the NFL when you woke up that day was going to become the big story that it has been now for weeks that he has tried to make it anyway. So, yeah, he can go in lots of different directions. One day he'll completely undercut his own Republican uh, leaders, as you point out, to make a, a short-term deal with Democrats. Uh, that's been the exception, not the rule. Uh, and other days he has you know, suddenly gone after you know, his own attorney general publicly in a way that, again, no president that I can remember would ever do. I, I was part of the interview in July when suddenly he told us he wouldn't have even appointed uh, Jeff Sessions as attorney general had he known that he would recuse himself from the Russia probe. Uh, and, and, and it just it was set off a week of extraordinary uh, public uh, excoriation of his own attorney general. So it, it, it's just um, unpredictability is the story of this of this presidency. Now we keep trying to say, is there a method to this? Is there you know a strategy behind it, or is it strictly impulse? And I, and I think that uh, it's a lot of impulse. We it's not entirely so. We shouldn't always assume uh, that it's completely spontaneous, but. Um, at the same time, I think we're also trying to read and find greater meaning to things that may, in fact, not have them. So um, last question, Peter Baker. Um, one of the areas you get into, as many people have, is in the whole question of staffing. I mean, he's just sort of not staffed up in the White House. Many of the key cabinet departments are not staffed up. Um, and one of the people, I forget who it is in your article, says, well, he just doesn't need some. It turns out he just doesn't need some of these people. And I wonder about that. Politico has a story today about how there are going to be more departures. Some of them will be pushed out by John Kelly. Some of them will just leave because this whole thing is too crazy. And if I were the kind of person who might get one of these jobs, looking at the situation right now and wondering whether I might 
ultimately have to hire expensive private counsel if any part of the Mueller probe spilled over onto me or, you know, I mean, I don't know that I would take a job. there. I mean, isn't there some point at which he doesn't really have enough people? I don't know whether we're there yet or not, but at some point where he just won't have enough people to prepare him in the way that Kelly talks about in your article so that he'll he'll at least know the upsides and downsides of every issue. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. The, t- the turnover rate, according to a, uh, uh, a Brookings Institution study, was 34% in the first year. That's twice as high as any presidency in the 40 years that they studied. And that creates a lot of angst, a lot of uh, uh, churn, and a lot of instability. And you're right. It, it, it seems to stem from this idea that he has that who needs anybody else? I am the one, uh, only one who really matters. Uh, I alone can fix it, remember he said in the convention last year. So... Uh, or two years ago now, I guess, a year and a half. And it, um, uh, it doesn't serve a president to have staff constantly changing. It does, though, suggest that they are trying to find people who might fit these roles better. Sometimes the first generation of staff in a White House you know, is just kind of put in place because of loyalty and because of uh, other factors rather than whether they are genuinely suited for those particular roles. Now they've been there for a year, at least presumably they should have a better sense of what these roles require and who might be better fit. So we'll see whether the second year uh, ends up putting in a better team or a more helpful team to him or whether uh, it continues to be the same. All right. Peter Baker, Chief White House Correspondent for The New York Times, uh, analyst for MSNBC. Great article. We've just scratched the surface. People should read the rest of it. Uh, Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Good talking to you. All right. So we're going to take a little break here. And then, as promised, we're going to come back to talk about the football juggernaut, the football juggernaut that has spawned up in the cornfields of Middletown. There probably is a cornfield in in Middletown. Not as many as there are in Nebraska. Talking about Wesley. Gosh done effing unreal. All right, uh, we are back. Um, yeah, when I, when I talk about, when I even read about the idea of Wesleyan refashioning itself as a football power, it is hard not to giggle, uh, but it's also a real thing. Uh, and Ben Strauss is the co-author w- with Joe Nocera of Indentured, Inside the Rebellion Against the, NAA, uh, the NCAA, uh, and he's the author of an article about, in fact, colleges like Wesleyan, and especially Wesleyan, small Division three colleges that have either gotten rid of their football programs, getting them back, or as is the case with Wesleyan, simply beefing up a football program that had been a little bit more of a, of a bauble uh, on their uh, charm bracelet. Uh, ben Strauss is a contributing writer to the New York Times, uh, and he's joining us right now. The article that he wrote was for Slate, if I didn't say that already. Ben Strauss, thanks for being with us. Happy to be here. Happy New Year. So, um, Happy New Year. So, um, when we say, in the case of Wesleyan, that they're beefing up their football program, what do we know? What do we know about that? What do we mean by it? How do we measure that, that they're they're doing more? Yeah, I think it's sort of, we make a distinction here. Wesleyan is not uh, Alabama. Um, You know, they're not playing in the Sugar Bowl. They're not playing in the national championship next week. But on the scale that Wesleyan football exists, there was a a decision made, um, around the time that the new uh, president, about uh, 10 years ago, uh, came aboard, President Michael Roth, and, uh, you know, went on a listening tour of, uh, you know, various constituencies and and stakeholders in the university. And and a lot of people said, we want Wesleyan to care more about athletics. And so what uh, the school went about doing is in um, 2010, lured away the the football coach at Williams. 
Um, and Williams had a very successful football team, you know, going back years. Wesleyan, not so successful. There's the, you know, the famous little three um, tournament every year, and that's Amherst, Williams, and Wesleyan. And Wesleyan hadn't won the football version of this since 1970. So we're talking about, you know, years and years of, if not um, bad football, then, then football teams that were losing to their rivals. And so you hire away the rival coach and, you know, spend a little more money on uh, assistant coaches. You change the way you recruit. Um, and that's sort of the, the, the focus and the interest in being better at football. And that's sort of what happened. And uh, a few years later, Wesleyan wins a uh, little three. They've added another one since, um, and including a, a conference title in the NESCAC. Um, also in the last few years. So um, sort of a shift in focus and, and a shift um, in how Wesleyan wants to think about their football team. Right. So um, it's a quick story. So I'm very old, but I, I went to a an academic institution slightly south uh, of Wesleyan. Uh, and when I was just out of college, I was persuaded to join the Yale Club of Hartford here in Hartford. And I would go to these lunches, and there were all these older guys, and they would sit around for the entire lunch complaining about the football team and, and also talking about how they'd done alumni interviews with some great fullback who had proved that he could count by stamping his foot or something, you know, and like, why didn't he get into Yale? And at one, I get so tired of hearing it. At one point I said, did you guys go to Yale for the football? Because, like, there's this place called Nebraska you could have gotten into and you would have had so much more fun. But the, the truth, Ben, as you point out, is that if you've got a football program, uh, if, you know, whether you're at Nebraska or at Division Three. Your alumni and your student body is not going to want to sit through grinding 35 to nothing losses. Yeah, one of the really sort of surprising things that I found is that there is a, you know, it's not every Wesleyan alumni, but there's a vocal group of Wesleyan alumni uh, who care about the football team. And uh, there were a couple of seasons in the 2000s. Um, there was a winless season and then a, a one win season. And, um, you know, a group of, of alumni formed an athletic advisory committee and, and this was something that's deeply important to them. And um, I, I thought that didn't expect to find that at a place like Wesleyan that's so famous for, you know, its iconoclast way of doing things and, you know, thinking of itself as, you know, keep West weird. Um, the idea that there would be alumni who, who really cared about the football team was, was uh, surprising to me. You know, football, I mean, so in the NESCAC that you just talked about, Colby, as you point out, uh, has spent a lot of money on its athletic complex in general, $200 million. Middlebury uh, has spent $46 million on, on an athletic field house. But those are mo more generalized expenditures spread across a whole bunch of sports. Football is really weird because on the one hand, it's the thing that alumni get the most fired up about, unless you're at like a straight-up basketball school uh, like UConn or something like that. I mean, it, it, you know, alumni get the most traditionally fired up about football. It's tied to homecoming celebrations and stuff like that. But football also is regarded from the other end of the, the tube as really, really expensive, that, that the bang for buck is always kind of questionable, um, that there's a culture that goes along with it that might in fact clash with basic liberal arts values because it's hierar hierarchical and militaristic. And so I don't know. How does that all play out on a little one of these little Division three schools? Well, I think the most interesting thing about football in today's day and age is actually uh, when you look at the science of it and the safety of it um, and the brain injury 
and CTE and all the research going on at Boston University and other places, and to think about uh, liberal arts schools like Wesleyan or Williams or Amherst um, spending more money and, and investing in football at a time when all the research points to this is a sport that damages young men's brains. And so I, I think, you know, even before you, you think about the finances and you think about sort of, um, you know, the role on campus, you can ask the question of, you know, is it appropriate for, you know, these liberal arts schools to um, be investing in football, given all that we're learning about the sport? And I, I think it's a, a fair question to to raise and to um to think about it, especially at, at these small liberal arts schools that don't have, right, Ohio State and Alabama, none of these schools are getting rid of football, but there have been at least one uh, example, Swarthmore got rid of football um, in 2000. And um, it would seem to be a question of, of, you know, how do we treat football on these liberal arts campuses? And the decision that everybody seems to be making is we're going to invest more in it. And and the other question that I had, so like famously, at least when I was in college, the Ivy League didn't allow athletic scholarships and, and, and stuff like that. A lot of these schools don't really have that kind of tradition either. You know, the notion that you're going to let somebody in because he's a good football player, you know, at Williams or something. It just it sort of rings funny uh, against the ear. I mean, what's the reality there? How how does a, how do these little liberal arts schools with high academic standards deal with the question of bringing in high-quality athletes? Yeah, it's a great question. And so we don't have athletic scholarships in Division Three. So all of these schools, the NESCAC we're talking about, um, basically have what is called a TIPS system. And so at Wesleyan, you've got a campus of 3,000 students, and about a quarter of them are playing varsity sports. So we have a lot of people involved um, in sports, which... You know, we don't want to sit here and, and bash athletics. Like, a lot of that is very good. And, and um, you know, athletics play a role uh, on campus and, and school spirit. And, and there is something um, certainly positive to, to talk about here as well. Um, but you think about bringing in these better athletes, a lot of them are coming in through a tip system. And so there's 60 to 70 spots per class um, at Wesleyan and other NESCAC schools where you can bring in somebody who doesn't have the, you know, the same academic profile, um, that you're sort of allowed to, to dip into lower SAT scores and um, bring in students who, who wouldn't otherwise get into um, Wesleyan. And, and what this brings up is there's a, a couple of questions that arise. I talked to a couple of former um, admissions officers who said this is a system that really um, serves as affirmative action for white men. Um, because minority athletes, so you have a, a black football player or, you know, a minority athlete, the school, the school's mission is we want to, um, you know, support diversity. We want to have a diverse campus. And so the uh, minority athlete can get in um, through, you know, other quotas, through, you know, diversity measures. And that means that these athletic tip spots are then saved for uh, white, oftentimes men. Mm-hmm. And so you have sort of this, um, you know, contradictory system of, of values in terms of who's benefiting um, from these, you know, special athletic spots. And then the second question is, 
you think about the opportunity of co- uh, cost of who Wesleyan is deciding to educate and the message being sent to you know, high school students across the country because the, the admissions process at Wesleyan is so competitive and the number of uh, applicants for every one spot, um, it's a choice that Wesleyan is making that we're going to uh, reward athletes and, and value uh, athletics in the admissions process. And I talked to somebody who said, you know, you can say that doesn't change the mission of the university, but in fact, it does. So I am reminded of uh, a Doonesbury cartoon from probably like 20 or 30 years ago, and it showed the college president from the strip uh, talking to some fat cat, bald, punchy donor, and the donor is saying, well, I want to build a basketball uh, facility. And the president's going, you know, what we really like you to do is take that money and we'd like to use it for a new uh, African-American studies center. And the guy just throws a tantrum and goes, I want to give a basketball facility. <laughs> and you sort of wonder about that. If Colby's getting, you know, raising $200 million for sports complex, Middlebury, $46 million. And then some of the other uh, NESCAC schools that you talked about, these little schools, are, are spending substantial amounts of money uh, on football practice facilities or stadiums. Wesleyan, by the way, having done this kind of on the cheap compared to a lot of places, it's still, there. there's another question. Like, you can beef up your endowment by having a football program, but then there's a kind of race to the bottom, too, right? It's kind of like, well, yeah, that's what they're going to want to spend even more money on. Yeah, it's like, in sort of where is the line, right? Um, Wesleyan, President Roth, you know, where is the line in, in terms of, you know, football or athletics reshaping the academic mission of the school? And, and you know, very proudly he, he says, you know, our largest uh, athletic expenditure, you know, in my tenure is $3 million for a new, um, I think it was a lacrosse, field with a, a new uh, synthetic turf, right? And that's actually, you know, far lower than, than some of these huge uh, sums that are being spent in other places. I think at both Williams and Amherst, they've renovated, you know, very specifically their football stadium at, you know, costs of more than $10 million. And so for him, the line is, you know, as long as we can hold the line on, on expenditures, um, we are you know, maintaining our mission, we are you know, keeping athletics in its, its prior place. Um, but, but once you sort of raise the bar on, you know, athletic excellence is important, uh, I think, yeah, that's sort of a slippery slope of, of where do we, you know, where do we stop and, and what happens if we start losing. In campus culture, I think. I mean, not to be a jerk about this, but I have one word to say, uh, Duke. You know, just in the sense that Duke has very high academic standards, it's obviously Division One, but it also has this kind of athletic bro culture for which it's famous <laughs> and sometimes maybe unjustifiably infamous, speaking of lacrosse. But, I mean, yeah. you know, if you go to Wesley and you basically expect to be around a lot of other people who have subscriptions to the New York Review of Books, yeah. <laughs> You know, and have yeah, had, and, and and there are right. There are you know, there's studies that show, and I talk to people on Westland campus that there, you know, there is sort of this athlete non-athlete divide. Um, athletes tend to be uh, richer, they tend to be whiter, um, and they major in uh, non-liberal arts subjects uh, like economics at a rate that's three times higher than the rest of the campus. So it, it the idea that there is sort of this cultural divide on campus, I think. Um, you know, most people said that that is pretty real. Uh, at the same time, I think it's sort of hard, you know, maybe to 
fault Wesleyan completely because sort of there's a, a natural pattern of, you know, college students want to hang out with their friends, and, and I don't know if it's necessarily fair to, to blame Wesleyan, um, you know, for the theater kid not being best friends with the starting quarterback, but but absolutely sort of the um, the, the gap between athletes and non-athletes was, was something that, that came up to in a number of conversations I had with students. Yeah, I mean, you know, Wesleyan's a small place, 28, 2,900 people, so yeah, add a small group of jocks, and it seems like a, maybe a bigger presence there. Hey, Ben right, Strauss, and, and, yeah, 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 go ahead. 10% of the class is coming in on the tip, so it's it is uh, it has a much bigger uh, you have a much bigger chance of distorting your student body when the student body is so small to begin with. Right, and that's sort of you know when you talk about a small liberal arts campus and bringing in um, you know athletes through the tip system. That's you know one of the questions that that comes up. All right. So Ben Strauss, uh, the article is The Liberal Arts Football Factory in Slate. Uh, Ben Strauss is the author. He spent some time with us today, for which we are very grateful. Uh, We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. You know, every year there's a conversation about what the word of the year is. Our go-to guy about this is always and always will be Peter Sokolowski from Merriam-Webster. He'll be with us after this break. We saw your scores on the SATs. We know you're going to score a ton of TDs. And we know you never made A's and B's And ain't real sure you know your ABC The biggest hashtag fail of hashtag dictionaries is this year not coming up with a hashtag pronunciation of the hashtag kafefe. Also not getting people to stop saying hashtag. Today's show was produced by hashtag Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish wears a woke Me Too pussy hat. Voiceover help in the intro by Josh Nalea, Tucker Ives, and Frankie Graziano. The part of Bill Curry was played by Noah Webster. On tomorrow's show, our weekly roundup of last year's best jazz. And now, back to Colin. And in fact, our next guest could be on either one of these shows, today's or tomorrow's, because Peter Sokolowski is not only editor-at-large at Merriam-Webster and named one of Time's best uh, 140 best Twitter feeds in 2013, but he's also public radio jazz host at WFCR. He is, in fact, joining us, I think, from a soundproof booth, booth in uh, NEPR uh, up in the North Country. Uh, but he's not here to talk about jazz. He's here to talk about words of the year. Hi, Peter. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year, indeed. So this word of the year stuff, I mean, it's sort of it's a way that we kind of check changes in the language. But people have different approaches. Like at Merriam-Webster, the way I understand it, you guys are mainly interested in what people are interested in. That's right. It's quantitative. So because we put the dictionary online, and this story goes back now 21 years because we went online in 1996, and we, we saw for the first time which words people were looking up and we at first took that as a kind of interesting feedback and a confirmation uh, that the, the words that we spend a lot of time on as dictionary editors, those like abstract words, words like integrity and pragmatic and ubiquitous and conundrum, um, in addition to words that are just tough in English, like affect and effect, and to know the difference of them, and a handful of words for pronunciation, those were all at the top. And then something happened that changed kind of the way that we look at data forever, which was the death of Princess Diana, which was the, um, in 1997, maybe the first widely shared uh, news story that was widely shared online. And so that we saw that our words, as they were being looked up in real time, suddenly changed. 
We saw paparazzi at the top, which was, of course, the, the cause of death, and the word cortege uh, for her funeral. And then, most intriguingly, the word princess itself was one of the most looked-up words that week, and that gave us a clue to something that we will be talking about today, which is that adults look up very basic and very common words pretty regularly uh, in the dictionary, and uh, we don't know that this is measuring a zeitgeist. It's measuring curiosity. Right. So sometimes what's being looked up is not a word that you've encountered that you've never heard before, but a word whose meaning perhaps you and another people, another person construe differently or, or a word that's maybe being used in a way that you're not sure conforms to your own understanding of that word. I'm assuming that's one of the reasons that feminism is at the top of your list this time. Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, we're talking about nuance at this point. So adults are familiar with the word feminism, but then you can look it up in the dictionary and you get... You you know, uh, a, 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 a sort of um, a, a, a dis- distilled version of that meaning. And it's often, as you know, it's kind of a, a journalistic uh, faux pas to begin, you know, according to Webster. But the fact is, for research, for plain Jane research at home on your own, um, a lot of times people do turn to the dictionary, not for what we might call lexical curiosity, you know, how is it spelled or how is it pronounced, but maybe the beginning of something else, the beginning of philosophy, for example. You know, feminism is an abstract term. It's a political term in certain ways. And when, when the word itself is put into question, when the meaning is questioned, for example, when Kellyanne Conway said, I don't consider myself a feminist on national TV in February of 2017, that sends a lot of people to the dictionary just to confirm or to, you know, to question what exactly is meant. Yeah, I mean... I think a lot of times in academia, you'll see this too. I, I'm about ready, getting ready to teach a course this spring. And one thing that I'm noticing is that in, in academia, the word populism is used differently than it is in journalism. So populism increasingly in some of the journal articles I'm encountering is kind of synonymous with with the kind of stirring up of grassroots, antipathetic nationalist sympathies. So they, they'll use populism to talk uh, about uh, right-wing movements in France and the Netherlands and Germany, and they'll talk, use it to talk about Donald Trump. Whereas populism, if you're just sort of an American history student, has a much more value-free uh, connotation to it. I mean, it's it's you know it's any kind of movement that's kind of based on the interests of the people, um, and and so when you have those abstract words, I, I would imagine that pinning them down so everybody's using the same word the same day, same way as often as possible is one of the virtues of a site like Merriam-Webster. Absolutely, because in a sense we are in this this particular moment that it has this intense concentration on the news and on politics, on uh, what's been called fake news and also alternative facts. Um, both words, by the way, uh, you know, uh, were, were looked up a lot in the dictionary. That is to say, the word fact itself was something that many people consulted. Um, but the fact is, uh, with the, a dictionary, you, kinda, you, you have a neutral arbiter um, in this environment where everybody's got a, an angle and everybody has their own opinion, uh, perhaps, and uh, they're all yelling at each other at the same time. But you can go to the dictionary and get a, a much quieter version of a kind of a neutral, objective measure of what this word has meant historically and what it means today. And I also, my sense is, for example, there are words that I think that you can make an argument for being words of this year or of the last two years. I would say woke is probably one of them. You and I talked about that in, sure. uh, in April, I think, in front of a live audience. Uh, you know, this is sort of the year of pussy hat, uh, stuff like that. But those are also words that I would assume Merriam-Webster's kind of looking at and thinking, well, is anybody going to use them this way three years from now, or are they flashes in the pan? 
you know, endurance is a big issue. And when you look at our top ten for the, the, the different words of the year that, that showed, for the most part, a uh, very, very big increase year over year. And that's really the, the, the way that we measure our uh, 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 vocabulary. And the, the, the words that tell us something about 2017 are words that were used much more frequently or that were researched much more frequently in 2017. And so that's why feminism got the top spot. But there are other words like, you know, like complicit and collusion and recuse and federalism these are all political terms in one way or another that are uh, that were in the news that were cued by stories from the news uh, and and they end up giving a kind of vocabulary lesson to the nation yeah i mean and i think there are there's i don't know be, because of the way the the wordosphere i just made up a word mm-hmm. <laughs> the wordosphere works these days i mean things happen very quickly in the digital universe so i mean you have a term like fake news now fake news isn't a word it's a phrase uh the guy from buzzfeed who first coined it to talk about uh and to demonize a certain kind of uh misleading information encounter that he was encountering in, in other parts of digital media he just wrote an essay this weekend saying that he kind of feels bad about ever coining this phrase because it's being used Use kind of the opposite way that that he uh, uh, originally imagined, and I think that's one of the things that's different right now too. Is that you know words change because of the way they're used, and that often can happen over years and years and years and years, and ultimately you have you know a sort of descriptive as opposed to prescriptive way of looking at the word. But that happens really fast right now, Peter. Yeah, it happens fast, and in real time, um, the the greatest tool for a linguist is the corpus, which is to say a corpus is just a body of text, um, usually that's cleaned up. In other words, there's no junk, there's no advertising, and there's no, especially no repetition, no duplication. And one of the biggest corp- uh, corpuses out there is, uh, is hosted at uh, Brigham Young University, and Mark Davies, the professor and linguist who runs it, made a great analysis of uh, 2017 with the now, the news on the web, the N-O-W corpus, which has you know, the better part of two billion words in it. And sure enough, you're exactly right. The words that were, looked, that were uh, used the most, not looked up, but not consulted, but actually printed uh, the most in 2017 were fake news. And number two is alternative facts. So you've, you've kind of nailed it, that that, is, uh, that that term tells us something that's new and different about 2017. And you mentioned the BuzzFeed uh, the writer, Craig Silverman, who uh, has spoken at conferences uh, with me uh, in the past, and I remember him talking about fake news in 2014. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't, I mean, I think his point, if he were the third party to this conversation right now, is the problem is it doesn't have a stable meaning. Right. When he was using it in 2014, it means something very different. I mean, the other person who uses it a lot right now is President Trump. He doesn't mean the same thing that Silverman means. Absolutely. And I, I can, uh, you know, I can't speak for Craig, but I do know that one of the important points that he makes is that there's always money behind his definition of fake news. There's somebody's making money somewhere. I think the other thing that's sort of fascinating like, uh, is like a word that you've really looked at, the word complicit. So the way that I would describe that is, you know, it probably starts a little bit with a Saturday Night Live parody uh, with Scarlett Johansson pretending to be uh, Ivanka Trump for a, a perfume called Complicity or Complicit or something, and then revolves into uh, Ivanka Trump saying she doesn't know the word, meaning of the word complicit. Uh, it, I mean, it's sort of interesting how these words get rolled out onto the field of play. And here's the thing, and this is a real case where the word itself was the story. <laughs> you know, it wasn't a word that was used by a newsmaker. The, the story was about this word complicit that, as you say, was suggested by the Saturday Night Live sketch, and we got a spike there. But then uh, I think it was Gail King who interviewed her 
And um, she said, you know, I don't know what complicit means. And when a newsmaker says that on national television, you better believe it cues many people to go to the dictionary. So, uh, so you're, you're happy with, or I mean, you don't really have any choice about whether to be happy uh, with feminism as your word of the year. This, it just, it's a numerical question. Absolutely. It, it, it's a measure of curiosity. And I hesitate to say a measure of the zeitgeist, because I think if, if you've got people who are trying too hard to, to get the, the, you know, the, the essence of a year, I think that, that's something that someone will always find fault with. Whereas if we stick with what we do, which is to, to measure the dictionary as data, to look at um, which words were, were looked up and when, then that's a story that we know we can tell that other people can't tell. And so that's why we try not to say that, you know, we're, we're, we can tell you what the zeitgeist of the year is, but we sure can tell you what people were curious about. Well, Peter Sokolowski, I'm going to, um, uh, before I say goodbye, have you take off one hat and put on another and tell me what you what your favorite jazz release of 2017 was to get us ready for tomorrow's show. But first of all, I want to thank you, editor-at-large at Merriam-Webster uh, and a prolific uh, and, uh, listener to jazz and public radio jazz host at WFCR. So uh, if you were on tomorrow's show, what would you be saying was the best uh, jazz record of the year? Oh, golly, there's so many, and it's so hard to choose. It's like asking, you know, what, what your favorite, um, uh, you know, dessert is or something. But um, I love the pianist Bill Charlap, who is, uh, has a kind of an elegant, uh, mature uh, swing um, that is still rooted in the tradition. And his record called Uptown Downtown um, is one that I'll be playing for a lot of years. I just love it. I think that might be on one of the lists for the panelists tomorrow. Peter, thanks for being with us today. Great to hear your voice. Um, as we end today, speaking of music, so there's a thing that happens, you know, every year there's like the New York Times Sunday Magazine does the this special issue called The Lives They Lived, and you find out that maybe somebody that you really cared about died and you just didn't even know about it during the year. That's what happened to me with Maggie Roach when I picked up the magazine and saw that uh, she, one of the three Roaches, the oldest of the three Roaches, had died. I was so sad. And I so I wanted to end today with this song that she and her sister Suzy Roach did on their uh, their album Zero Church. If I die before I wake, pray the Lord.